I hope that you um, have not missed the calendar today. I know that it's easy to do as life goes on, but I was a college student when I woke up that September day um, and made my way over to the, the common area where a lot of the students were just glued to every screen in the building when we saw the horrific news of what was happening in New York City on September 11th, so many years ago now. Just under 3,000 people, their lives were taken, some voluntarily as they ran in to rescue people and could not, could not accomplish that task. So we would be wrong to not pause this morning and to thank God that we have an opportunity to remember them, those who were courageous and those who were victims and, and certainly for the things that, that our nation embraces in its freedom that is threatened by the world around us, that we ought to have a moment where we are sorrowful for that, but also where we thank God for what we do have. So I would like to take just a moment, and I want to pray, and, and then we'll get into the sermon. So would you bow with me? Lord, we know that when horrific things in the world happen by the hands of, of, of wicked individuals, Lord, that we, we are grieved. And Lord, it is an ever-present reminder of how deep the need of salvation is in the hearts and minds of all those who need to know you who do not. I pray, Lord, that we would be about that work. I pray that we would be inspired, ever-pressed by the historical events that remind us that, that the world around us would seek to take short our lives and to, and to rob us of the liberty in front of us, the, law, the liberty that gives us the opportunity to serve you. I pray, Lord, that we'll remember those sacrifices of the courageous in this day and that we will, we will always remember. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Transitioning into a moment here where we're going to pick right back up in Scripture where we left off, I, I will preface this morning's message, message by saying this to you. Jesus faces hard things all the time in the Bible, and I'm not going to skip those hard things. So this morning, if you've read ahead and you looked a little bit further into John and you realize he's going to touch an uncomfortable topic, know that it is for our benefit. Whenever Jesus addresses it, we should look to it and we should say, praise be God. So turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 4. We're going to pick up about the 10th verse. So John chapter 4, when you get to verse number 10, if you would stand in honor of God's word. John chapter 4, verse number 10. It says this. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? As well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman said, the woman answered and said, I have no said to him, Lord, we look to Scripture and we are reminded that Jesus sees deep into each and every one of our lives and he knows all of our shortcomings and all of our flaws and all of our faults. 
But we are also reminded that this is the same man who came to offer each and every one of us eternal life. Lord, I pray that today that we would see eternal life in the midst of our our own flaws. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You come to this passage, and it's so interesting. There's a subtle thing that I hope will just come to life for you this morning, but in looking at this, we, we picked right up, and I read the verse that we finished on last week because I wanted you to see the context of why they were having this conversation. And there's something for us as we embrace it right off the bat that Jesus gives her the statement that we ended on last week. If you knew the gift of God, I mean, right there, the gift of God. It, it, do you realize that whatever follows this is all going to be built on the fact that Jesus is describing to her a gift? And in my conversation, when I talk to people about salvation, oftentimes I will talk to them about the gift that God gives us. And when I do this, I oftentimes will remind people that it's kind of like salvation is like a present with your name on it. One of the biggest flaws I think most people make is that they know a lot about this gift, but they never actually receive it. They never ask for it or they never take possession of it. They know salvation exists, but this gift of God, they don't, they don't embrace it. And then I'll ask people this question. I'll say, how many of you like Christmas? So I'll ask you that this morning. How many of you like Christmas time? Do you like to give gifts? Do you like to get gifts? Do you like to get gifts more than giving gifts? Well, it depends on your, you know, your gifting. If, if you're a person who is like, man, I love to give gifts. Doesn't matter if I get one or not. Some people in this room are like, man, I love to give, get gifts, but I don't like to give them because gifts are expensive, Right? I mean, come on. Gifts can be expensive, right? The gift that God gave us at the cross was expensive, wasn't it? Okay. Have you ever had a Christmas present for you under the Christmas tree that had your name on it? That's exciting stuff, isn't it? Have you ever said to yourself, it's, it's kind of winding down on December 25th and that present's sitting there and all the rest of the gifts have been opened and your name's on that one and you said to yourself, I'm going to go home now. I don't care about that gift. No, we don't do that. What do we say? We say, give me that gift that has my name on it. It's for me. But I fear today, brothers and sisters, that many people have done this very thing with God. God has given them a gift. He has put their name on it and they walk out of church or they never even go, and they say, I don't want the gift. It doesn't matter that it's for me or that it has my name on it. When Jesus begins to open up the story, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And he says to you, this gift I have to give you, and then he says, give you living water, and you're like, is the gift living water? Well, in the context of this passage, I'd say, Absolutely. What he's going to describe here before, before us is something that's profound. Uh, well, this doesn't go unnoticed. The woman who's there does the very thing that many of us did and many of us will do every time something miraculous is unfolding. What, what happens here is that she employs her own sound logic and reasoning. She decides that she's going to be smarter than Jesus. Read with me verse number 11. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. And she begins to just lay out for him some basic obstacles. You're thirsty, and you say you have living water, 
but son, you don't even have a bucket or a rope. And so it is with God. He doesn't need our tools to give us the things that he has to offer us. Amen? If the tools and the gifts that God used and the gifts that he had to offer us were packaged up in the things that we have around us, we would do those things for ourselves. But her logic says you don't have the right tools for this gift. You don't have what you need. And she's employing her logic. And I'm going to tell you, your logic and your experience are constantly getting in your way of your belief in the Almighty because you constantly look around at the way that men can do things or that the people can do things, and you see these impossibilities, and you think, there's no way. But that stuff's getting in your way. I guarantee it's getting in your way. She goes on, and she says this. Where do you get the li that living water? And then she asks him a question. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? And she begins to just, to just drop this historical truth on him. And she's like, you don't have anything to draw with. And by the way, are you better than the people that gave us the well? And I guarantee that if she knew the whole story, she'd understand that he is indeed greater. Because this is the, the very same the very same God in the flesh that, that was present at creation that said, let it be, and there was water altogether. There was no water for that well until he was present at creation. So sure, he has water to give. Do you understand? You see the greater picture? She doesn't know Jesus. She lacks a sight of him and can't fathom what he is or what he has to offer because she is constrained to her logic. There's this picture. There's this picture of who we are in the midst of, of, of a miraculous king and, and God. And oftentimes we have these questions about, and we, we look to our history and we look to everything around us and we say these statements about, about the logical reasons why these things won't work. And all the while our Savior is looking over our shoulder saying, did anybody bother to ask me? And I suggest that oftentimes we do not. Jesus immediately in this response, and I love that he gets just right there in the nitty gritty. Like, he is just dialoguing. He is not caught off guard by her. There's not anything you could say to Jesus that will catch him off guard. There's not anything you could say to him that he doesn't have a right response to. There's not anything that you can do that will surprise him. So he just calm and cool. Jesus answered and said to her, and I want you to follow very closely to the English lesson in front of us. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Everyone say, whoever. Now this time, look at your neighbor and say it like you mean it. Whoever. Whoever means you and me. That's everyone, right? But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. Did you, did you see the English lesson that I wanted to teach you this morning? He does something really strange here that bothered me deeply as I studied this. I was really unsettled by this. Who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to a woman at the well, and he's dealing with her specifically, and he talks about the whoever at first, and then he drops this him in there, and you're like, wait, why is that him there? He's talking to a her. And I suggest that in the greater context it makes sense, but if you, if you don't follow through, you won't find it. But man, I marinated on that for a long time. 
He says, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And you're like, Jesus has lost his mind. He's talking to a woman and he's talking about a him. And he's like, what is going on? We see this picture and this gift that he offers. You see, one of the things that I want to highlight before I get into the him part is the fact that he talks about our provision. Has anybody in here ever woke up in the morning and scrambled to your application or your device to look to see if your paycheck made it? If that check cleared the bank? If you got the money that you think you need to go do the thing you want to do today? Anybody ever in here ever paid bills and then went shopping? That's the smart way to do it, by the way. Pay bills and then go shopping. Anybody ever here went shopping and then paid the bills, only to feel a little sad afterwards? I, there's this, this understanding that we have provision in our life that will, that will run out. Your earthly possession can be taken, can be, can be stripped away from you, can run away all the time. Your provision will not last. It will not last. It doesn't not matter how much you have. It will not last. There's only, there's only one measurable treasure that lasts forever, and that's everlasting life. And sometimes the investment that we make in everything else is dangerous. It's dangerous because oftentimes we're trying to pile up our provision, forgetting all the while the thing we should have been investing in. You see, in the very next line when he says that he was going to give this to him, he says that that individual will never thirst again. God's provision deals in always and never. You know, when I'm sitting with couples and I'm talking to them and they're having trouble, one of the things that we dialogue about is the way they use their language. And oftentimes I get to this part of the conversation, one of the things I warn them about is be careful to say things like always and never. Because if you're in this room today and you're married to somebody and you use the word always and never, and if it's not in praise of your spouse, you are probably already in trouble. Well, you always leave your laundry on the floor. Or you never take the trash out. You always bring the car back empty. Or you never do your dishes. Always and never are traps. Be careful. Be careful. Hey, let me just say, because I've told you a problem now, now I need to give you a solution, don't I? How do you not do that, Brother Ben? Well, here, I'm going to give you just a little marriage counseling. I want you to use ownership language going forward. Everyone say ownership language. I think, I feel, I need, I want. Some of you are already catching on. Some wives in this room will be like, thank you, Brother Ben. Some husbands in this room will be like, why did you do that to me? It's okay. I think, I feel, I need, I want. Take ownership over the things that you're talking about in your household. will help you in your relationship. When you use the word you and then follow it with any statement, it's an accusation. When you use the word I, you take ownership over it and you express how you, and you communicate how you feel. That one is completely, completely to the side. Take that for what you will. It works, but in the grand scheme of things, you see this language. When Jesus uses the words never, he means it. When he uses the word always, he means it. Whenever the prophecies in the Old Testament cry out that he will reign forever and ever and his throne will be always, it means it. Whenever he says that he will 
give someone living water and they will never thirst again. He means it. See, when I came to the Lord, there was a hole inside of me that was filled up that day that has never been empty since. Doesn't mean I've done everything right and it doesn't mean I've been perfect since that moment, but it means that there's that emptiness that I don't feel anymore because I have a Savior to cry out to no matter how bad I mess up. He goes on and he says, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And it says not only will that person never thirst again, but it will do something inside of them that will affect the world around them. And there's more on this, and I'll touch, come back and touch on this again in the weeks to come. But I want you to see this. If you know this Jesus, and he gives you this everlasting life, this water, this living water, and you are, are filled up and you're not thirsty, it ought to splash out of your life into somebody else's. Speaking of splashing out into some of your lives, I want you to look around. I'm just going to poke at you a little bit here, folks. Has anybody noticed an empty chair in the sanctuary? That living water that's inside of us. Let's start praying that God will use it to splash out on somebody's life that we can invite to fill that empty seat. I don't want you to do anything this week besides pray about that empty seat you see. Maybe you're thinking of somebody. Maybe you're, maybe you're, You've been talking to somebody, pray this whole week about there was an empty seat in church that I was thinking about, and I want God to fill it, and I want him to use me to help fill it. That's, once again, another, just another side piece. Verse 15, he's, he has laid out the, the, the proclamation, and he has said to him, to him, to him, and she says this, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Always the cry. Always the cry of the person who wants to know the Savior. Lord, give me this thing. Give it to me. And there's such a peculiar response. I told you, I marinated on this. I thought about it a lot. Jesus' response to her is, is, is it feels like a dis disjunction. I hope it'll make sense here in a minute. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. He doesn't say no to her. He says to her, go call your husband and come here. He, he intends to meet her need. But he has to do something first. Okay, now you say to yourself, why does she want to never have to come back to that well to draw again? Well, partly because if we know anything about the historical setting, that she's coming at a strange time of the day, which is a clear indication that she's got a busted relationship with the people of her community, and she's embarrassed or ashamed of something, and she can't be there when the other ladies are there. Otherwise, she's going to get what for. So she comes at a strange time of the day, and she hears Jesus saying, I'm going to give you something that will make you never thirst again. And, and she says, give it to me. And Jesus says, go get your husband. And right about here, it gets real uncomfortable. You say, why does it get real uncomfortable? Because she answers and says to him, I have no husband. Now, there are all kinds of cultural things we can unpack here. Okay? In Jesus' context and in his culture, which you have to understand if you're going to understand these verses, the well is owned by a man. It cannot be owned by a woman. The water that comes from the well that's there 
patriarchally belongs to who did she say? Jacob. We see the picture here that this is a masculine-driven society. I'm not saying that women aren't important or that this isn't a part of that narrative. What I'm trying to say is, is that in the context of the culture that Jesus lives in, he's working inside the lines, and he is not breaking a context or a cultural expectation in this moment, and it makes us uncomfortable because I believe that every man, woman, and child in here can come right up to Jesus and get saved today. They don't need their parents or their spouses or anybody else's approval. In the context of this verse, though, we see Jesus is talking about something that's very important for us to unwrap. He's saying, you have busted relationships in your life that keep you from me. She says, I don't have a husband. What does he say to her? You have well said. I have no husband. Verse number 18 now. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. And he begins to talk to her about something that's very interesting. He begins to say that you are in a pattern or a cycle in your life where you have decided to fill your void with something that is not fulfilling. And in your relationships, you have tried to fulfill a need that doesn't fill the thirst in your life. And as a result, serially, you have done the thing over and over and over again, and it's broken. And he's telling her, this is in the way. Now, he's touching on marriage, and he's touching on divorce, and he's touching on all the things. But you know what? The church is wrong for not touching on these things because half of the marriages in all of America, whether in the church or out of the church, are busted. Jesus is not afraid to touch a hard subject. Neither should we be. Tell me honestly, and I don't, I'm, this is rhetorical, so that means don't answer Some of you have lived through horrible, horrible relationships, and as a result, there's a brokenness inside of you. You thought that you would be happy ever after if you got in the right relationship, and as a result, you were broken by that relationship, and you wondered if it would ever be okay again, and you might have done that many times before you realized that that's not the right answer to make you right. But it's not just about marriage. Some people do this with drugs and alcohol, and some people do this with, with money, and some people do this with success, and some people do this with approval of others. And Jesus will tell you time and time again, go and get the thing that's in between you and me, and let's deal with it and make it right before I can help you not be thirsty anymore. Now, that being said, you know, when we teach the kids in VBS, what do we teach them? You have to admit that you're a sinner. Right here. I'm going to show you the one area of your life that's really busted so badly that we have to deal with it. I don't know about you. When I see Jesus talk about a hard topic, I look at it and I say, praise be God. Because there are some hard life scenarios in this church, I guarantee there are. You know why? Because you're human. So, so am I. I mean... There's this moment where I read about this artist, and I thought it was really spectacular. There's this artist in Mexico that had an accident and lost his arm. He's a sculptor, by the way, and he's kind of helpless now. So what does he do? He, he forsakes the, the practice that he used to use and took his one good arm, and he learned to sculpt again. And he finishes this beautiful masterpiece 
And you know what the name of it is? In spite of. God things in your life that are broken. He wants to save you in spite of the hard things that you have faced. He wants to sort them out. When Jesus says, I'm going to give him this water, you don't think that Jesus is calling out there and say, bring those five guys back with you so I can talk to them too. Because they need to be saved as well. If you've ever had a busted relationship and if you've got ongoing conflict with previous spouses, I'm going to challenge you to start praying for your ex. Because it's the, it's the object of this scripture that everyone would know the gospel. Oh man, Brother Ben is meddling now. She responds to him and she says this comment. Verse number 19. The one woman said to him, and I think this is so telling. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Rewind back to verse number 10 with me. Rewind. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And her response up to this palm in the story is, you're a prophet. Which was high praise, by the way, in the context of her culture. A prophet, a prophet in, the, in her culture and in the, leading up from all the way from the Old Testament until now in this part is the mouthpiece of God, somebody who tells the truth about God. She is giving him high praise and, and she is declaring to him that he speaks for God. I, I, I perceive that you are a prophet. What is your opinion of Jesus this morning? You know, there's a, a book that was written, The Cradle of Eminence a study of 413 extraordinary individuals. The author who had collected these stories and wrote this book decided that they were going to see if there was a common thread that made these people gifted and talented and successful in their fields. And, and you know what they found out? Of the 413, the 392 of them had gone through extremely difficult things in their life, that they had shared one thing in common, and that is that life can be difficult. You might have come to church this morning not expecting this, but what I'm going to tell you is that life can be difficult and that relationships can be hard and that the world that you live in can be broken. But Jesus is offering us a gift. So you have to decide right here and now. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to pray. And when I do that, you're going to decide whether or not that present that has your name on it will still be here or if you're going to take it home with you. So why don't you stand with me? Some of you are in this place, and maybe you know the Lord, but maybe your relationship is busted. Maybe you don't need to pray for your ex. Maybe you need to pray for your spouse. Some of you are in this place, and you've been doing things your whole life thinking you could fill yourself up, and you can't. Some of you are in this place, and maybe for the very first time you're starting to see Jesus as this mouthpiece of God. No matter who you are in this place, if you need to come and respond, the altar is waiting. I'll be waiting. I'm going to invite Brandon to come and he'll be waiting. You can come and talk to, to, to me or him. But don't wait. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to be in your house. I pray that each and every one of us, confronted with the truth of Scripture this morning, we would come to this one place where we would say, 
Lord, these broken things in my life that don't fill me up, that I keep going back and back and back to, and I, need to, I just need to get rid of them. I need to let them go, or I need to ask you to be king over them. Lord, I just want to bring them right now to you. And I'll lay them down before you, and I ask you to take those from me. Because you see deep into our lives, and there's nothing we can hide, and there's no, there's no shame that is great enough to keep me from bringing it to you today. Lord, if there are people present here, many, one, any, that are, that are leaning in to know you for the first time, I pray you'd give them courage. Courage to come and ask a little bit more. Lord, that each and every one of us, when we walk out of here, could say that you are the mouthpiece of God over our life and that you have offered us a gift and we have accepted it. We ask for this in Jesus' name.